First Peter chapter 2, let's begin in verse 13. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and, the, and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep gone astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Those of us that know you, Lord, we're so thankful that you saved us, that you took us where we were in the depths of depravity, and you plucked us out of that and put us in a safe place, upon a rock, Lord, you, on the foundation of you, Lord, and we are so thankful for that. And we we know, Lord, that your word, you have intended to bring us closer to you, to show us where we need to repent, to show us what changes we need to make to encourage us, to comfort us. And Lord, we yield our hearts to you before your word, Lord. We thank you that your word will outlive the heavens and the earth. And we recognize that it's supernatural and it will accomplish every purpose it's sent to accomplish, Lord. So we yield our hearts to you, Lord. We want to be doers of your word by your grace and by your power, not just hearers only deceiving ourselves. So we commit this time to you. We pray that you would be our teacher by your spirit. We thank you for the needed place that your word has in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Peter is continuing this very encouraging book. And as I've mentioned, he's been focusing on two themes. And those themes will continue beyond 1 Peter and into 2 Peter. And those two themes are eternity and practical holiness. Last time when we were in the book, when we were studying a couple weeks ago, and we began chapter 2, we saw him really begin to focus on holiness. Chapter 1 has a lot to do with focusing on eternity and who we are in Christ and so forth. But when he gets into chapter 2, he really focuses a lot on practical holiness. We saw in verse 1 of chapter 2 that we were told to lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. And that would uh, make a great difference in this world if every Christian 
we're exponentially growing in those expressions of self-control related to what comes out of our mouths, which is an overflow of what's in our hearts. So he says, even though you're going through great persecution, again, remember, he's writing to Jewish believers that were being persecuted and they're suffering greatly. And God is still concerned about our practical holiness and how we live our lives, even in that context. Because in every context in which we find ourselves, God is very concerned about our personal holiness. The standards are getting lower and lower all the time in our culture, sadly, even in many churches. And things are being accepted and there's compromise going on left and right. That's why it's so important to go through his word because his standard never lowers. So even in this incredible time of persecution, these believers are being exhorted and encouraged by the Lord himself through the Spirit with the Apostle Peter writing these things to encourage them to grow in their uh, practical holiness. Then in verse 2, we saw uh, one of the main ways that we grow in, in our spirituality, and that is to desire the milk of the word. And we saw that the word picture for us was a baby that's hungry, that just wakes up, that is so starving and just wants that milk so bad. And he knew, Peter did, that every person that he was writing to would have a word picture in their mind being able to relate to a a, a baby really being hungry for, for milk. And so he says, just like those babies desire that milk, you need to desire the pure milk of the word. So even in difficulty and in suffering and in hardship, we don't just throw our personal devotional life out the window. So often that can be tempting because we're distracted. We think we don't have time for that. That's the very time we need to be clinging on to the Lord the most and getting his spiritual strength and perspective and so forth when we're going through that difficult time. And then we saw after uh, speaking of Jesus being the chief cornerstone whom the builders rejected, he started to talk about our personal holiness and how it should silence unbelievers who want to slander our lives. And unbelievers are really good at that, aren't they? They love to take the smallest little thing, some imperfection that they see in our lives, and they love to amplify that and slander and speak evil against us. And, and of course, God gives us the solution to that, and that's, that's what he started to, to reveal as we saw in verse 12. In fact, look with me at verse 12, uh, the last verse that we covered last time. And he said, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Notice he doesn't say in that verse, by your good words, which they hear, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Our words are important. He just got done speaking about that in verse 1. What comes out of our mouth is very important. But God makes, puts a high premium on our works, far greater than what comes out of our mouth. In our culture, we like to say it as talk is cheap. You know, put up or shut up or however, whatever the word, the phrases are and the slang and so forth. We know that someone who walks the walk instead of just talking the talk makes a huge impact in this world for Christ. He's called us to be, uh, you know, walkie-walkies instead of walkie-talkies. You know, we have to live that life out in front of people so that they can see those things. We can say a lot of things, but until we actually live out, and that's what makes a difference, doesn't it, to unbelievers? 
What's the biggest concern people say or the excuse a lot of people use related to going to church? It's, well, there's so many hypocrites. And as they said, if you're looking for a perfect church, don't be a part of it because then it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> because we're all flawed and we're, this is the hospital. People are learning to get spiritually well. You don't go into a, a hospital and get mad that there are people that are sick there. The purpose of the church is to grow us into maturity. So we're going to be falling short. That doesn't mean we have a license to do whatever we want, but there has to be an a, a, a environment of grace so that we can fall short and we can be gracious and loving and forgiving one, with one another. That's the process through which God brings us into maturity. So, but our works are important. And, and so that's why we saw the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 16, tell us this. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may hear your good words and glorify your Father. No, it doesn't say that. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It matters how we live our lives. It matters who we are when no one's looking. That's the true test of who we are. Not who we are in front of other people. So often we can put our best our best foot forward or, or, you know, act and be a hypocrite. That's what it, the word hypocrite means. It means to be an actor. And Jesus doesn't want us. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Those Pharisees were religious actors. They could have wore, uh, won Academy Awards for their acting. But before we're so quick to criticize them, we need to look at ourselves, myself included. Because we can be actors with the best of them. We could be getting awards left and right for how we can act at any given moment related to our spiritual condition. So he says, your works matter. It makes a difference. And so Peter here today is going to continue with this theme of practical holiness, as we're going to see. He's going to continue speaking of our good works, silencing unbelievers, but he's going to do it by focusing on a theme, an additional theme, a subset, so to speak, of the theme of practical holiness, and that is the theme of godly submission. And you would think, well, how does that make a difference? Because he's going to be talking about governmental authorities and, and, you know, the relationship between master and slave, and in our context, it really is employers and employees. We don't really have that as an issue in our culture. But godly submission is a very key way to express personal holiness. And the reason is because it requires at least two things. It requires humility, because you have to be humble when you're in submission to someone. But also it requires, and this is even more than humility by far, it requires a fear of God. It requires recognizing that how God has set things up. He's a God of order. And, and you see, and we see it in Romans chapter uh, 13, where the Apostle Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves." So God has set up those authorities. And so for us to function properly within that structure requires us to fear him. In, in this, not fear like in an unhealthy way, but have that reverence and awe and that respect that he has set those things up in our lives. When we fight against the authority that God has placed in our lives, whether it's in the home, in the marriage, or within the church, or within society, we're going to not be blessed, first of all. And then, uh, secondly, we can be under God's discipline. 
And so that's why it's so important for us to recognize that we can't be very much engaged in practical holiness if we don't have a pattern in our lives of being submitted to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. So he starts in verse 13 and he says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So he starts with therefore. So he's already spoken in verse 12, as we saw, about submitting yourselves there to people and to um, let your, your good works silence those that slander you and so forth. So he says because of that, a way that you can express that and have your works shine before men that they glorify your Father in heaven is to submit yourselves. Notice he says yourselves. You have to do it. No one can take submission from you. It's something you offer somebody. Especially in a Christian context, it has to do with your worship of God. When you submit to the authority he's placed in your life, regardless of which one it is, you're expressing a worship to him. So you're, you're, it's something that you're offering to others. There's a difference between obedience and submission. Obedience is just doing something that you're, that you're told. Submission is offering your heart and you're, and you're offering that place of the other person in your life in, in, a, in an expression of, uh, of respect. So it's something that you offer over to somebody else. And he says, to every, notice, every ordinance of man. You mean the one that I have to stop all the way at a stop sign? Or what about the one where we have to claim every little deduct or deduction on my taxes and or this little extra income that I got that I don't really feel like put less, list, listing on my taxes? Yeah, that, that one too. There's all kinds of ones that but we just kind of, that's ah, not that important. But he says, every ordinance of man for whose sake? Notice he says, the Lord's sake. The Lord's sake, for his sake. Because he is holy, he says we should be holy. And, he, he, and, and the Lord Jesus obeyed everything on, in, when he was in, this, in his public ministry. He obeyed every ordinance that, that was laid before him. And it says, whether to the king is supreme. Now, this would be Nero, the emperor Nero. So this is the, right now, for them, it would be the, the emperor. And he was in the process of engaging in great persecution with, the, with uh, believers. And, and so you think, well, I'm only supposed to submit to authorities when they're, when they're respectable, when they're biblical, when they're treating people well. He doesn't say that. And this is the worst context that you would ever imagine. I mean, I can imagine these believers looking at that, wait a minute, we're supposed to submit to Nero? This crazy man that's persecuting people like crazy, that's passed all this persecution, all, all the directives to persecute out from Rome, and, and they're experiencing it all over the place at this time? Absolutely. He says you need to submit to those uh, authorities or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So those that, that the government has set up to be enforcers of, of the law of the land. So our governors, our law enforcement, and so forth, we should obey all of those laws and all of those authorities as an expression of our worship to God and the fact that he's placed me as a citizen in this country and and that he set those things up for my benefit and my protection. Christians should be the most law-abiding citizens this world has ever seen. No king or no ruler should have a legitimate 
concern about a nation following the Lord Jesus Christ because they'll be the most the greatest citizens, the most loving citizens. It's purely demonic that that they consider us as something to be uh, overcome or to be defeated because all we're wanting to do is love people. All we're wanting to do is tell people the truth about themselves. All we're wanting people to do is to be is to be blessed. And so we're called to be very law-abiding citizens. Now, there are exceptions to this because there are times when the, the governing authorities will tell us to do something that's against God's word or to renounce our faith. And we see civil disobedience all over the place in the scriptures related to that. And, and that's what happened. That's actually what would ultimately happen to Peter himself who's writing this book. He would, would not renounce his faith and he would ultimately be martyred. And, and crucified upside down. The Apostle Paul, the same for him. Eventually in Rome, and he would be led out and, and beheaded. He wasn't crucified, likely because he was a Roman citizen, but he was beheaded as, as history records. So he starts with that. And then he continues, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. So he says, this is the will of God. You know, as a, as a pastor, I hear a lot about people's questions, and I've had my own questions about what's the will of God for my life. And there's a handful of places in the New Testament where it's just explicitly laid out what the will of God is for our lives. Give thanks in everything is one of them. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here's another one of those examples. This is the will of God that we do good and put to silence. And that word silence means to muzzle. The imagery that Peter is painting for these believers is that these people are, are horrible people in the sense of what they're doing. He's not minimizing how they're being mistreated. He's referring to them as like a wild, rabid dog. And, and he says they, they, that will muzzle these evil doers because we're, we are doing Good. We should be so busy doing good and known for doing good that no one has anything legitimately to say about our lives because of our actions. And so often in, the, in, the, in Christian circles, we talk about how are we a good witness for Christ. And we need to be doing both speaking and preaching the gospel because how can they believe unless there's a preacher, right? So it, we have to preach the gospel. But also we have to live our lives in such a way that's different, that looks distinct and not in a weird, crazy way where we're wearing sandwich signs and, you know, just being extreme or whatever, but to live our lives Christ-like, because that's extreme in this world. To be the fruit of the Spirit, having the fruit of the Spirit coming forth from our lives, that's extreme, that's weird. To not over, be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. To love our enemies, that's the living a different kind of life. To serve people, even when we don't get anything in return. The world does not function in that way whatsoever. So as we do good, we muzzle the ignorance of foolish men. Then he says in verse 16, as free, we are free. We're not free to do whatever we want, to serve ourselves and to feed our sinful nature. We're free, and this is the context especially, we're free to do good. That's what our freedom is for. We're free in Christ and we're new creations and we've been called to ministry and to serve and so forth. And we have that freedom to do what we've been called to do, not be free to do what we want to do related to our own sinful nature. So he says, we are free. 
when we're not supposed to use our freedom inappropriately, and that's what he says the rest of the verse, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. What's that talking about? We don't really talk about cloaks. I can only think of Star Trek. You know, I think it's the Romulans that have a cloaking device where they, you all of a sudden you can't see the spaceship. They've, and so in that time, it was an outer coat that went over them and it would cover, it would conceal things underneath the cloak. They knew exactly what that would mean. And then for vice is something evil, something wicked, something horrific that you want to do to somebody because of what they've done to you. So he, he says, don't use your freedom to hide your sin of, 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 of retaliating towards somebody and hurting somebody. Now, put yourself in these believers' position, that their position would be, they're very vulnerable, and they want to take matters in their own hands, in their, in their flesh, and, 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 and strike back and hurt people in, in response to this persecution. He says, you don't, you don't need to do that. You need to put all your emphasis and all your energy to doing good back to people, even though they're, they are mistreating you. And he says, as at the end of the verse, he says, but not you know, as bondservants of God. What's a bondservant? A bondservant is a willing slave. Someone that in the Jewish culture had a debt to another Jew. After they served out their debt to pay them back, they're, they're free to go after seven years, but they want to be uh, in servitude to that other person because they love them so much. They've never been treated so well. And so they voluntarily become a servant for life, and it's permanent. And the arrangement is that it's voluntary and it's permanent. And so he says, you are bond servants of God. So you need to do God's will and be doing good to others in the face of persecution and hardship, even though it's very difficult to do. And then he gives us some very specific things in verse 17. He says, honor all people. That's, that's very searching. Now, all of these things he says in verse 17, they're in a verb form that communicates they're a command. We have to say something loud or arrange our vernacular a certain way to communicate that it's a command. They didn't have to do that. They just put it in a certain, uh, you know, a certain form in the Greek language. And so he says, all these things are commands. And he says here, honor all people. That's important for us to, you know, we think, well, this is simple. Of course we know to honor all people. That It's not whether we know we should honor all people. Again, anything in God's word is not just for knowledge. It's, am I doing it right now? So is there anyone in my life that I'm not honoring? It says we're supposed to honor our father and mother. Are you doing that? We're supposed to honor one another. We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to do the right thing with other, in the context of other people's lives. We're supposed to be honoring people. Even the people that we think, well, they're not honorable, so I shouldn't give them that honor. Well, when does it depend upon how people are related to how God calls us to treat people? We're supposed to love one another, but they're not very lovable. We aren't lovable, and he loves us. We're supposed to be gracious with people. The very definition of grace is getting something that you don't deserve. There's a lot of things that he calls us to do that don't make sense in the natural. But we're supposed to honor people, even when they're doing dishonorable things. We have to be in a place where we can be available to them to give them the truth and tell them the truth about what they're doing. He also says, love the brotherhood. Now, the rest of these, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, those are in present tense form. So it means continuously. So he says, continuously love the brotherhood. What does that mean? Love other believers. And so sometimes there's people that have a, a kind of a, a personality or a background where they're not people, people. That's okay. 
God's made us all different. But he, you know, whether we're people people or we're kind of introverted and not really comfortable around people a lot, he's always encouraging us to do the best thing for other people. That's what agape love is. It's, it's where you do what's best for the other person even at your own expense. So we may not, it might, may, not, may not be our natural inclination or leaning to do what's best for somebody when we see that they're in need or to express that we care about them, but God calls us to do it anyway. And so he says it's a fruit of the Spirit, of course, but also it's something he tells us to do. So we're supposed to love the brother. We need to value one another. So often I say, you're the best thing going. Because we are. We're the body of, there's nothing better than the body of Christ. We're nothing better than the church, especially those that are growing and so forth. And so we need to value one another. Instead of, and I know there's plenty of legitimate reasons for this, and I'm, don't get me wrong, but there, there are times when we're rushing out or rushing away from being among God's people, and the treasure is right there among us. And you know, he says, value them. Don't just rush out. Consider yourself a person that can be ministering to other people because that's God's purpose when we come together. He says, fear God. Continuously fear God. And that, that means to respect and have an awe and so forth. But that's something that we have to be reminded of regularly because we can have a flippant attitude towards him at times. And we need to recognize that he is the great I am. And, and he's so far greater and, and more amazing than we could ever comprehend. And we could lose that honor and that, that reverence and that respect. And he says, honor the king. Continuously honor the king. And I still believe that's, I don't think that's capital K. Although we're supposed to honor him, obviously. But honor those that are in authority, uh, even if they're not entirely worthy of that in terms of what they're doing. We need to recognize that God's allowed them to be in that place of influence. We're told that God holds the heart of the king in his hand. So he is sovereign over who's in charge and who's overseeing things. He's not out of, God's not out of control with who's overseeing things in this world. He's very much in control. Then he says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So he says, be submissive to your masters. Now, again, there were 40 million Jews at this time in the, in the Roman Empire. So many believers were slaves. And, and so God knew that eventually uh, that he would take care of that by and large in this world. There's still slavery, trust me, uh, around the world. But by and large, he would, he would eradicate that and continue to... So, some critics will say, well, how come he doesn't denounce? It's obvious that being a slave is not, God's called us to freedom. But what he's doing is he's revealing that Christianity works in any context. Even, a, even in that context, Christianity works. And, and so whatever place we find ourselves and whatever way that the government is formed in our lives, Christianity is very uh, useful and successful and works in any environment. He tells these slaves to be submissive to their masters in all fear, not only to the ones that do good and that are gentle, but also the harsh ones to submit to them as well. Because he knows that those, those uh, owners or those masters, they need to see a godly example too. And again, the way God reaches people so many times is having Christians do the unnatural, supernatural thing, to be going the extra mile, to be forgiving, to be loving, to be a servant when they, the other person knows there's no natural way that they could do that. That's how God communicates 
that we're different and that the message that we're proclaiming is real and, and it's entirely different than what they ever thought it could be by seeing our lives be different. So a, a, a submissive slave in that, in that time would make a huge difference in the life um, of, the, of, the, of the master. But now for our context, it's, you could talk about it in the context of, of employers and employees. That's very practical in our culture. Have you ever had a great boss? How many of us right now would say we have a great boss? Raise our hands. Good amount. And how many of us had a very harsh boss? A lot of hands going up. Okay. So obviously with our sinful nature, it's easier to be you know, more obedient to ones that are good and, do, and treat us well and are gentle and so forth. And it's harder to to obey and to respect and to submit to one that's harsh. Nobody should ever be treated in a harsh way. And, and, but God still says if that you find yourself in that position, God has all the resources for us to be able to respond appropriately, to be able to walk in submission and be a good worker even though they're harsh. And it seems like, oh, how could that be, how could it be possible? Again, we can't forget how powerful his Holy Spirit is how powerful his grace is in our lives as we lean upon him and yield our lives to him. He gives us the supernatural power. I mean, there are so many stories I've heard of employers that were harsh with their Christian employees. And over a long period of time, God just wears down that person. Like, I've treated you horribly all this time. And you never returned evil for evil and you never gossiped. You never slandered me. You worked really hard. And I know that I wasn't treating you well. And because of that, I was open to the gospel. I've heard this story over and over and over. But God calls us to live differently. I'd like us to turn quickly over to Matthew chapter 5. Hold your place in First uh, Peter. Turn over to Matthew 5. I'm going to go over one of the hardest passages in the Bible to obey. <laughs> it's very relevant to what we're looking at. Matthew chapter 5, I want to begin reading in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You can turn back to 1 Peter 2. That is impossible to do in our own strength because our flesh flares up so fast. I call it a flesh flare-up. Just want to just rip someone's head off, right? And, and we're supposed to do good. And remember, this is serious persecution. This isn't just, my boss looked at me gave me a dirty look. Oh no, I'm being persecuted. I'm melting. I'm melting. It's talking about serious persecution. He doesn't just say tolerate it. 
He says, bless those, do good, like proactively doing good to somebody, blessing them, bringing over a meal to them, visiting their family member who's in the hospital, and your boss is mistreating you, you go to visit their son that's in the hospital. I mean, proactively doing good. Now, we can't do that in our own strength. We have to rely upon his strength to do it, but that's his heart. That's how he is seen. That's how slanderers and unbelievers and critics, their mouths are muzzled by us doing good. And, and God is glorified through that. And he says it in verse 19. Look with me there. He says, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when you are beaten, and that's literally meaning taking blows to the face, that's what the word beaten means there, for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So he's saying, if you endure getting beat because of you doing things that are wrong, there's no reward in that. That's not commendable. That's like, well, you brought this on yourself, buddy. But if you do good and you're, and you're beaten for it, if you're a Christian and you get persecuted and you suffer and you take it patiently, then this is commendable before God. Notice the end of the verse 20. He says, before God. God sees it. One of the easiest things to forget when you're being persecuted or mistreated is that God is watching everything. It's as if all the interaction that you're having with your person that's, that's persecuting you is literally right in front of the throne of God. He's seeing every bit of it. He's seeing all their treatment to you, and he's seeing all of your treatment back to them, every single bit. And not only that, he sees our hearts, because there's a lot more that we have wicked in our hearts towards people that are mistreating us than usually we ever express outwardly for anybody to see. But he sees all of it. Now, he gets to the best example of suffering for doing good with the Lord Jesus, beginning in verse 21. He says, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. That's, that's the ultimate example right there. And he quotes Isaiah 53, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Because when we're being lashed out, when someone's lashing out at us, we want to have deceit in our mouths and we want to sin but he is our ultimate example of not doing that who when he was reviled did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten don't we do that we're being mistreated you watch it i'm gonna get you back you someday i'll come back on you and i'll be a part of that you know we want to threaten people but committed himself to him who judges righteously and that's the most important thing about understanding how to react appropriately related to being mistreated because we want justice don't we we want justice that person should pay and that's the thing we need to remember about the end of verse 23 we committed jesus committed himself to the father he didn't have to get back at anybody he knew that the father is going to judge everything accordingly and he says he judges righteously so when we're mistreated when we're suffering we know that ultimately the person either is going to get saved which we may not be all that excited about in the beginning <laughs> when we think about it, but they're either going to get saved and be forgiven or they're going to get justice. Either way, the, the end is going to be uh, rolled out in such a way to where justice is, is done. And so we, can, we don't have to get people back for things because God's going to take care of it. He says, I will repay. You know, I don't, don't avenge, <laughs> don't get revenge. I will repay. Verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree 
that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So here he says that this is what Jesus did for us. He died for us. He took our sins in, notice the word, in his own body on the tree. That's literally timber there. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, after the Jews would, you know, exercise capital punishment by stoning, by hurling massive rocks on, you know, then if they were, if some of them were hung on trees afterwards. And, and so they were told not to leave them out, uh, you know, for, for very long. But that's where the whole thing with anyone who's on a tree is cursed. And, and so he says that Jesus suffered for us, having taken, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. That's us. We, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Again, quoting Isaiah 53. So those stripes that he took, when he took those that scourging, and they would, they would, keep, they would lighten the, the strikes. They would take bone and rock and pottery and they'd weave it together in leather cords and they would whip and it would rip out flesh and they would go lighter on you if you confessed your, your, you know, the accomplices or, or the, the persons that did the crime with you or, or you know, whatever you perpetrated and so forth. Well, obviously, Jesus had nothing to confess. He would have to confess all our, all our names because he was taking the wrath that we deserved, right? And so he took those stripes, and that was to provide uh, spiritual healing, but also physical healing is provided for, although not guaranteed in this life, but ultimately we will get our, our new resurrected bodies, and we will be free of all suffering and pain and so forth at that time. But he can heal today, and he tells us to come and ask if we're sick and so forth. So he's saying all of that demonstrates what God endured for you, and so we need to follow in his steps. So Peter knew all about the Lord Jesus' suffering. And it's interesting because he didn't always have such a friendly posture towards suffering. You may remember uh, him saying about Christ, you know, you're not going to go to the cross. And that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You may remember when he struck Malchus, you know, with his sword in the garden and meant to probably get it, take his head off, but got his ear. And Jesus reached down, put the ear back on his head and healed them. He wasn't, he didn't want to experience or anyone else that he loved to experience suffering. But then he denied the Lord three times because he didn't want to experience suffering himself. And one writer said this, Which hour do you think of the sufferings of the Lord from Gethsemane to Golgotha would be most deeply engraved upon the memory of Peter? Surely it would be that space of time in which he was mocked and buffeted in the hall of the high priest when Peter sat and warmed his hands at the fire while his Lord was abused and was afraid to own that he was his disciple. And by and by became so terrified that with profane language he declared, I know not the man. So long as life lingered, the apostle would remember the meek and quiet bearing of the suffering of his suffering Lord. He didn't have a posture towards suffering before, but now here he's talking about suffering. He'd embraced it. He'd realized that Jesus was our great example and nothing but good came out of Jesus' suffering. I mean, if God can work all things together for good related to the cross and Golgotha and the Calvary, then how much more can he work our situations and what people mean for evil in our lives for our good? It, it, he can't. It's, 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 there's no limitation to what, how he can work these things in our lives. Just like uh, Joseph said, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He, he's big enough to oversee people's free will and still work things out for our good. So 
Lastly, Peter ends with verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Sheep are safe when they have good shepherds. And Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Every pastor in this world is an under-shepherd. There's only one ultimate shepherd that, Jesus, that, that we have, and that's Jesus Christ himself. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. And, and so he is faithful. He's a faithful shepherd. He's not an unfaithful shepherd. He cares about us when we're going through difficulty. He cares about how we're mistreated. And he doesn't ask us to suffer when he hasn't suffered first for us and been an example for us. So we need to trust him when we're going through difficulty and hardship. That he is still a faithful overseer of our souls. We can question whether or not he's a faithful overseer of our soul because he allows certain things into our lives, but he does so to make us more like him. We can't be like Jesus if we don't suffer. He said there's a fellow, Paul said there's a fellowship or a, or a sharing of Christ's sufferings that we can, we can participate in that brings us closer to him more than just about anything else. So we can't be afraid of that. He's not going to insulate our lives to where we don't, have, we don't experience difficulty and hardship and suffering at times, even persecution. And we can't be stumbled when he allows certain things like that to enter into our lives. We don't, we're not stumbled when other believers around the world are persecuted. We're not tempted to, you know, to, to go away from fellowshipping with God because of them going through those things. So we can't have a different set of rules for ourselves. If it's okay for our Christian brothers in China, it needs to be okay for us when we go through those difficult things. We have a faithful shepherd, and he wants us to never forget that. We need to trust him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for how faithful you are. Lord, we, we recognize how hard it is for us to accept the reality of suffering, but we know it's an extension of what you allow to make us more like Christ. So help us, Lord, to engage that and to um, depend upon you to do good in the context of suffering. Lord, I pray for anyone here that's going, suffering right now. Pray that you would help them to do good in that context. That you would remind us, Lord, to re rely upon your power and your grace to bless those that are mistreating us or those that are against us. And to, to let the light that you uh, produced in our lives come forth and to, to put people's gaze and attention on you so that you can be glorified and bring people to come to know you more in a greater way. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.